We will be looking this morning at verses 1 to 20 in depth. So Steve read out verses 1 to 34. And as we can see, as it was read out, this is just the beginning of Jesus' teaching in parables about the kingdom of God. And like many other passages in the Gospel of Mark, we see that our passage today has a lot to do with discipleship. And in particular, the heart of discipleship. And that's the title for today's sermon. And this passage is a fairly popular one. Many of you probably know it. In fact, each of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell their own version of this parable. But wherever you are most familiar with it, I would ask you that you open your eyes and open your ears this morning and you look at the text freshly. Because this is a really difficult text to interpret. Commentators say that this is likely the most difficult text to interpret in all of the book of Mark. So keep that in mind as we look into God's word today. There's always more that we can learn from scripture. And I'm also saying this from experience. I've studied this passage a lot. Even before I started preparing for my sermon, I had spent so many hours reading it carefully, observing it, and questioning it. But after studying it again, I've noticed that were things that I didn't pick up on. Like how this passage shows us what true discipleship looks like or how it shows us what the people of the kingdom of God are supposed to do. Have you ever wondered what the kingdom of God is like? Have you ever wondered what it means to be a part of the kingdom? What true discipleship really looks like? Well, hopefully, after looking into this familiar passage today, you'll have a better picture of those things. And since this is a difficult text to interpret, it will be helpful for us to understand the literary structure here. This is a typical Mark sandwich. And by sandwich, I mean a passage where there's some bread on either side and then some meat in the middle. So for us, we have the parable of the sower and then the explanation of the parable as kind of like our bread. And then verses 10 to 12 as the middle, as the meat. And when Mark uses these sandwiches, he wants us to look at both the bread and the meat in the middle to get the full picture of the passage to really get a good understanding. So let's look at the parable and its explanation first, and then what's in the middle, and then we'll see how all of it together gives us a picture of what true discipleship in the kingdom of God looks like. But just before we take a look at the parable, R.K. Hughes summarizes what happened just before our passage. It had been a long and emotional day for Jesus. First, his mother and brothers had come in an attempt to forcibly take him back to Nazareth to protect him from himself. Then he had been accused by the scribes of being in league with Beelzebul, to which he issued a solemn warning against unforgivable blasphemy. Lastly, he had proclaimed the shocking fact that his true mother and brothers were not his earthly relations, but whoever does God's will. And now in the afternoon, he left the house in Capernaum and went down to the refreshing shores of Galilee to preach. And this is what we see here in verse 1. Jesus starts to teach, and since the crowd is so big, he gets into a boat to address them all. And it says that he was teaching them in parables. But what is a parable? If you've read all four Gospels, you would notice that Jesus speaks in them a lot. An easy way for us to think about a parable is that it's a story from everyday life that illustrates a spiritual truth. So a parable is a story from everyday life that illustrates a spiritual truth. But how to interpret parables and understand the spiritual truths in them can be really hard. It can be difficult. 
And sometimes when people try to interpret parables, they try to make everything have some kind of hidden meaning. But that's not the proper way to look at and interpret all parables. Not all of them have a hidden meaning for all aspects of the parable. So please fight the temptation to treat a parable like a math equation, where there's the everyday life part of it on the left side, and then there's the hidden meaning on the right. In the middle, there's this equal sign, and you want to try and make everything on the left equal what's on the right. Parables are designed to illustrate spiritual truths, yes, but they're not designed to be a secret equation that we have to solve. In this parable, from verses 3 to 9, we see that the seed is being sown, and that there are four different scenarios here. In the first scenario, the seed is sown along the path, but the birds take the seed away. In the second, the seed is sown on rocky soil, but it has no root, so when the sun comes out, it scorches it and withers away. In the third, we see the seed is sown among the thorns, but the thorns grow up and they choke the seed and it bears no fruit. And in the last scenario, we see the sown is on good soil. The seed is sown on good soil. So the seed grows, it bears fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And notice that the seed's growth and fruitfulness is dependent on the external things here. It's dependent on what kind of soil it lands on. And that it's only actually the fourth soil that produces fruit. But what is the main point that Jesus is trying to get across with this parable? What kind of spiritual truth do we see in it? Well, Jesus explains the parable himself, but notice before that, there's a setting change in verse 10. It says that Jesus was alone, and those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And the idea here is not that Jesus was completely alone, but this is a much more private setting than earlier. Because he, he was teaching among the crowds, a huge crowd. But now this is just him and his close followers. So then he starts to explain the parable. And in verse 13 he says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And right away we see that there's something different about this particular parable. There's something different about the sower parable. It's different because this is a parable that shows how people react to the word. The parable of the sower shows how people respond to the word. In Jesus' current ministry context, there would be what he's teaching. So understanding the parable of the sower will help them to understand his teaching by explaining how people are going to react to the teaching. And this also includes Jesus' more general teaching about the kingdom of God. Earlier in chapter 1, it says that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The big idea here is that the parable shows how different people, how different people will respond to the word in general. For us in our day, it explains how people will respond to the word of God, to the gospel, and to our, the teachings in our Bibles. How people respond to sermons on Sundays. See, the sower sows the word. And depending on where it lands, the different things will happen, as we've seen. There are four different scenarios, and Jesus explains them further. In the first, the person hears the word, but Satan comes and snatches it away. And we see that this is kind of like the reaction that we see in the religious leaders throughout the Gospels. No matter what Jesus tells them, it just seems like they can't hear and accept anything he says. In the second scenario, they receive the word with joy, 
But when suffering or persecution comes because of the word, then they immediately fall away because there's no root. And this is like the reaction of the crowds that we see in John. Do you guys remember when Steve preached on the feeding of the 5,000, how afterwards they wanted to make him king? Yet just a chapter later, after these people realize who Jesus is, after he explains further, they realize that following him isn't going to be a life of power and free of suffering. So many of the crowd stopped following him. In the third scenario, the word is sown, and it lands in the soil with the thorns. They receive the word, but they have desires for earthly things. So the word is choked, and it bears no fruit. And this is kind of like the reaction of the rich young ruler. When he was faced with a decision to sell all of his stuff and follow Jesus, he doesn't sell all of his stuff, and he doesn't follow Jesus. And he walks away sorrowfully with all of his things. And in the fourth scenario, they hear and accept the word, and it grows and bears fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And this is like the reaction of the Apostle Paul, who after encountering Jesus, he responds by following Christ, preaching the gospel to others, and planting churches. And don't miss here again that only one scenario bears fruit. And that for a sower sowing seed, the purpose of sowing seed is that it would bear fruit. That's what the sower wants from the seed. He wants fruit. But only one out of four, only the fourth soil, gives fruit. But why do people react differently to the word? Verses 10 to 12 say, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And they said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. These people have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But what exactly is that? What is the secret to the kingdom of God? Well, the Greek word used here could also be translated as mystery. Secret or mystery. And that means that there was something formerly secret about the kingdom of God that God has now decided to reveal. And also don't miss that this mystery was given to these people. This is something that God decided to reveal, something that God has given them. To figure out what the secret is, we first have to realize that there are two groups. And we know that there are two groups because it says, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So there are a group of insiders who are with Jesus, who have been given the secret to the kingdom of God, and then there is a group of outsiders who have everything in parables. And the secret can't be the parable, because they both heard the parable, and it also can't be the explanation, because those who are inside haven't heard the explanation yet. Some context is helpful here. This isn't the first time that Jesus has created groups. Remember that just before this passage in chapter 3, that Jesus redefined who his family was? He said that the people who were with him are his family, and his family is whoever does the will of God. And also remember that Jesus was teaching at the beginning of the book that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the kingdom of God is here. And so far, there have been some people who have accepted that and accepted him and followed him. And then others who haven't. 
others who have rejected him, like the scribes who just previously accused him of being possessed by a demon, and like his biological family who thought he was out of his mind and tried to take him in. So what does the group that's following Jesus have? The group that is with Jesus in our text, what has his real family been given? And the secret that these people have been given is the fact that the kingdom of God has come to earth in the person, works, and words of Jesus. And let me say that again. The secret that these people have been given is the fact that the kingdom of God has come in the person, the works, and words of Jesus. And the people who have the secret, they follow him, they accept him, and they do the will of God. But what about those who are on the outside? Jesus says that for those outside, everything is in parables so that they won't perceive, so that they won't understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. And that word lest means with the intention of preventing something that is undesirable. But, I mean, surely Jesus wouldn't want people to not understand, right? Many people have tried to water down this text to make it not so harsh. But the text is clear. Everything is in parables so that they won't perceive and understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And some of you may be thinking that that doesn't seem very fair. Well, to be blunt, it, it is fair. It is fair. And here's why. If you've been following along in your Bibles, you've probably noticed that most of verse 12 is separated from the main body of text, and it has quotes around it. And this is because Jesus is paraphrasing from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. He's paraphrasing from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. But before getting into Isaiah 6, do you guys remember Steve's sermon from last weekend? He preached from Hosea 1, which was in the same time frame as Isaiah. And he told us about how for hundreds of years, Israel and Judah have been rebelling against God. They broke the covenant and rejected God by worshiping their idols. And that has consequences. Isaiah chapter 5 is helpful here. It says from verses 1 to 7, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do that I could do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God loves his people, and he's done so, so much for them. For what more could he have done? Think about how much work it would take to clear away the stones from the ground, to plant the choice vines, to build a watchtower just to protect it. 
yet it yielded wild grapes. Israel and Judah did not produce the fruit that they were supposed to. They worshipped their idols and rejected God after all he had done for them. Can you feel that emotion? And this is the context for Israel and Judah in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah is called to be God's prophet, and he says to, God says to Isaiah in verses 9 and 10, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Does this sound familiar? God says, go. Make their hearts dull. Make their hearts hard, because they have rejected me. And this is why people react differently to the word. Because discipleship starts with the heart. People react differently to the word based on the state of their heart in relation to Jesus. People react differently to the word based on the state of their heart in relation to Jesus. And this is what we see with those who are outside in our passage. The religious leaders have rejected Jesus by saying he was possessed by a demon. His biological family has rejected him by trying to seize him, thinking he was out of his mind. And because their hearts are hard, because they rejected Jesus, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And this is tragic. In both cases here, God's people reject him, and he hardens their hearts further. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there, because God is God, and his love is greater than what we could ever imagine. Because he has a plan, and because he is sovereign, it gets better. If you read to the end of Isaiah 6, it says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Even in Israel's rebellion, God is loving and he's faithful and stays true to his promises. His promise in Genesis 12, 3, that Israel would bless the nations, he remembers that. That stump remaining of Israel, the holy seed being Jesus, would form a new Israel with which all the nations will be blessed. Both Israel and Judah will serve under one head, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in the Gospels, God will use the hard hearts of the people to kill Jesus. To accomplish his plan to defeat sin and death. That we could be close to him again and that we could be forgiven for all of the stuff that we've done wrong. Even through people's hard hearts and rejection, God is always working. And he accomplishes his purposes. And just because a heart is hard 
doesn't mean it always will be. God can change hearts. And this is what we see in Acts 2 with Peter and the Israelites. The Israelites who killed Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified by the hands of lawless men. And then later, after Peter's whole sermon, 3,000 Israelites received his word and were baptized and repented. God changed their hearts. He changed the hearts of the people who killed Jesus through the faithful word of Peter. Why people react in different ways to the word of God comes down to the state of their heart. We've seen how hard hearts affect different groups of people, and that translates into how they respond to the word. But what about those who don't have hard hearts? What does true discipleship look like? True discipleship starts with having a soft heart. It continues by following Jesus and continues again by responding to his word by bearing fruit. I'll say that again. True discipleship starts with having a soft heart, continues by following Jesus, and continues again by responding to his word by bearing fruit. And those who are with him are those who have had a soft heart. It is those who have listened, who have heard Jesus' teaching so far, and they've done the will of God by following him. And asking about the parables, they grow. They go to Jesus, ask, and they grow. And this is like what we see in the scenario of the fourth soil. The model for true discipleship is that model in the fourth soil that we see. True discipleship means hearing the word and accepting it, growing by following Christ and bearing fruit. But why must true disciples bear fruit? The sower wants the seed to produce fruit, and likewise, God wants his disciples to do the same. He wants them to do the will of God. But what is the fruit? The fruit is applying and living out the word that is sown in you. So the fruit depends on what the word is. For example, what is Jesus' commission to his followers? It's to go, to make disciples. Go and tell people about Jesus. Be his witnesses. So a fruitful response to this is to actually go and make disciples. Go and tell people about Jesus Help others deepen their faith in Christ. Tell others the secret that the kingdom of God is here through the word, works, and person of Jesus. A not-so-fruitful response would be to never tell anyone about Jesus because you're afraid that maybe the other person will dislike you afterwards. And this also applies to the commandment of loving your neighbor. A fruitful, a fruitful response to loving your neighbor would be loving in the same way that Jesus loved, to tell them the truth at all times, even if it hurts. A not-so-fruitful response would be just to affirm everyone and everything because you don't want to be disliked. And true discipleship means hearing the word, accepting it, growing by following Christ, and bearing the fruit by living out the word. True disciples must respond to the word of God like that fourth scenario. But remember that it all starts with your heart. 
And remember that this is how you respond to the word in general. This isn't just talking about salvation or talking about being in the kingdom of God. This parable is setting a model, a model for true discipleship in the kingdom of God. And that's a model that we need to strive for. So what about us? What can we take away from this passage today? What is the state of my heart when it comes to Jesus? We've seen that Jesus explains how different people react to the word through the parable of the sower. In his current ministry context, he was referring to how people were reacting to his teachings, and in particular, the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we've seen that different reactions to the word start in your heart. But the state of someone's heart isn't always the same. So what about us? What is the state of my heart when it comes to Jesus? How am I responding to the word of God? Do I accept what's in my Bible? Maybe I like a lot of it, and that's great. But then there's some parts where, you know, I don't really like that whole judgment thing. So I'm just going to kind of leave that aside. Or going back to the example of the Great Commission, let me ask you this. Have you ever had the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus, but instead didn't? Maybe because you felt afraid of rejection, or because, you know, it just wasn't the right time? Or have you ever thought about going to read your Bible or pray for the day, but instead, you know, I think I'd rather go watch TV, so I'm going to go do that. Or maybe I'm going to go get a snack. And brothers and sisters, I say these because I'm guilty of them. And all of them are rejections of Christ. And I know that I've had a hard heart, and this has affected the way that I've responded to the word. How many times have I, after hearing the word of God faithfully preached and proclaimed on a Sunday morning, leave the building, go to lunch, and forget what was talked about? How many times have I started thinking about lunch during a sermon and completely missed what God was saying? How many times have I been thinking about other things while reading my Bible and just missed it again? How many times have I failed to tell others about Jesus? Far, far too many times. And I'm not saying that if you zone out once during a sermon that your heart is hard, but if you find a combination of these things happening over and over and over again, then ask yourselves that question. What is the state of my heart when it comes to Jesus? And if you're in a similar position to me, then repent. Ask God to soften your heart, to strengthen you, and be forgiven. When you accept his word and accept Jesus, because you can't do one without the other, then follow him. Seek him out. Ask him your questions. This is what we must do as disciples. If the interplay between the seed and the soil is related to us, then the growing of the seed is how we grow in Christ through seeking him. Read the word and pray daily for the right reasons and make Jesus a top priority and live like it. And if this is difficult to hear right now, I just want to let you know that it's okay. God is good and God is loving. 
And we can be assured that he can change hearts and soften them. In the example that I mentioned earlier in Acts 2, it says in verse 37 that the Israelites were cut to the heart. And they asked, brothers, what do we do? And as followers of Christ, we know what to do. We know we can run to him and that it's okay for us to fail because Jesus didn't fail. So go to him, put your trust and your faith in Christ to change your heart. And if you're here today and you haven't put your faith and trust in him as your savior, I plea with you to talk with me or talk with somebody around you that you might ask yourself the question, who is Jesus? That you would examine your own heart. Because true discipleship starts with your heart. But what about afterwards? Are we bearing fruit? True discipleship means bearing fruit. It means that we need to be applying the word, applying what's in our Bibles to our daily lives. We need to respond to the word faithfully, and the seed is sown here every Sunday, and we can go home and open up the word of God and just read it and hear from him. Let's respond with fruit. Let's respond to Jesus' command to make disciples and go into our city and make disciples. Let's go sow more seeds. We have a vision and a mission here at this church to see churches planted in the city. We want to see others come to Christ. And this is what we believe that God wants us to do. It's what we believe God has commanded us to do. And to make disciples, we need to be faithfully responding to his word and producing the fruit from the word that is sown in us. We need to go out and live out the gospel. We need to love our neighbors. We need to love God. And this is the best way we can live our lives. Don't forget that. Living a life responding fruitfully to the word, living like a true disciple and following Jesus is the best way we can live. Living a life walking with Jesus faithfully is so good because you won't experience a more rich, genuine, and real love from anything else in this world. In Jesus, we have somebody who will never cease to love you. Somebody who will never, ever fail you. And these are the types of promises that we see in God's word. This is what's taught in the Bible. This is what we can see. And we should respond to that by making it a reality in our lives. Respond to it by following Christ, by showing to others what he means to us through the way that we live our lives. So, church, respond to the promises of the word with praise and joy. Respond to his call to make disciples by making disciples. Respond to his command to love God and love your neighbor by loving them. Be fruitful to the word that is sown in you. And guys, I'm not, I'm not here saying that you know, the Christian life is easy because it's not. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that following Jesus is always better. Don't no matter what life circumstance you're in, it's always better to follow Christ and that he will always love you more than anything else in the world. So we should strive to be true disciples. Strive to be in the word and strive to respond to the word by growing and bearing fruit.
Let us pray. Father, I ask that after this you would be glorified today and that you would be glorified through this message. That the seed that was sown here on this Sunday and the seed that is sown in other Sundays, God, that they would plant and that they would bear fruit. God, would these people have ears to hear and eyes to see. I thank you for this opportunity to be here to worship you in song and praise in the preaching of your word in the community that we have. And I just ask that you would bless us all as we leave church today. In Jesus' name, amen.